I mentioned at the 8.30 service why we stand at this point in the liturgical tradition. The gospel lesson is usually at this point, and the gospel is the story of our Lord. So usually we stand at attention to hear the instructions of our Lord and Master as he tells the disciples what he expects them to do. Today we have a lesson from John's Gospel telling us about the Last Supper. And here in the midst of the Last Supper, Jesus is saying, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in seminary at Union Theological Seminary in New York City on Manhattan Island, just a few blocks from Spanish Harlem, I took the opportunity to serve an internship between my second and third and last year of seminary studies. Now, I had already worked in two fieldwork positions at churches in Inglewood, New Jersey, and at Valhalla, New York two wealthy suburban congregations outside of New York City proper. But I had not yet served any small rural congregations, and I was expecting to come back to Oklahoma where most of our churches are smaller and in rural areas. So I thought a little rural experience would be good for me. A position was available in Montana. It was with the UCC denomination, which means United Church of Christ, comma, Congregational. A lot of you have probably heard of Congregational Churches. Well, it's their denomination that I went to serve. It's very much like ours. Its theology and worship are very similar. Based on my two years of seminary and my ordination as a deacon in the United Methodist Church, I was granted a license to be the pastor of two small rural congregations, Fairfield and Power, Montana. The regular pastor had taken a sabbatical leave to start his doctorate of ministry degree, so I was to begin at the 1st of August and work through the end of May. My internship was structured kind of loose. My supervisor, the senior pastor at, at the First Congregational Church in Great Falls, Montana, said, I'm here whenever you need me, but basically you're out there on your own. Well, I arrived about a week early, probably a Monday, to get settled in before my first Sunday. I'd arrived just shortly after lunchtime and was in this little town of Fairfield, Montana, where the larger church was. And it was a really nice church and a nice little white frame parsonage right next door. And I'd been there less than an hour when there was a knock at the door. It was, from, it was a fellow from the funeral home that's in the county seat town about 30 miles away asking, can you do a funeral tomorrow afternoon? 
say, I guess so. He hands me a piece of paper with the name of the deceased and a phone number. Well, I was kind of grungy from the drive and unloading, so I jumped in the shower and, and put on clean clothes and went to see an elderly widow whose son, who had been living with her, had died. I spent about an hour or more with her and then went back to the church. The funeral director didn't know when he knocked on the door, and I was just realizing the full weight of it at that point that I had never conducted a funeral before. I'd only been to two. I just had two grandparents who had, who had died. So I went to the office of the pastor who had already left on his sabbatical. He wasn't there to give me an advice, and I hadn't met yet with my supervisor in Great Falls. So this became one of those God things that secular people call dumb luck. <laughs> I went into that office and immediately spied on a file cabinet a little black book. I went and I picked it up, and it says on the cover, The Pastor's Ideal Funeral Manual. <laughs> now, whenever I misplace something and try to find it, I could have looked for six hours and never laid my eyes on that. That's why I call it a God thing. I walked in the office and I saw it immediately. Well, I studied it carefully. Uh, not this one. <clears throat> I, I bought my own. and you, <laughs> I, I didn't steal it, but you can see I've kind of worn it out over the years. But I studied it carefully, looking for the right scripture lessons and prayers and, and figuring out what the customary mainline Protestant funeral service should look like and prepared my sermon celebrating the life and the faith of the deceased. I didn't realize it at the time, but funerals were the big social events in small rural towns. Everything stops, and we all go to pay our respects and to try to be comforting to the family. What I didn't realize was that my introduction to this community was going to be my very first funeral service. And it was going to be a test of whether or not I could win their approval or not. Another grace-filled moment. <clears throat> the service was, was well-received and appreciated, and I did begin a meaningful 10-month ministry there. Now, the point of this story is that in the crucible of that anguish time for me, 36 years ago, I basically worked out my way of doing funerals. And a part of the way I do funerals is very, very often I usually will use this text that was our lectionary lesson from the gospel today that I just read to you. I very often use that very text in the funeral service. So I thought that I might take this time to share with you my reason for including that text in the services. And that reason is because so often the bereaved have in their hearts and in their minds this question, how will God judge my beloved? And as some people 
express it, they say, I wonder if he or she is really saved. Now, often family members are very confident that the answer will be yes, yes, they're saved. But the question is still begging for confirmation. I remember another incident that happened not too long after that, which pressed me to do much more serious theological thinking about how and why we do funerals in the church. The incident was that a family man about 45 years of age had had a massive heart attack and died almost instantly, leaving a wife and three children. They were very active in their own church, regular in attendance, and the deceased had been there with his family most of the time. But they came to me because their pastor had told them that they could not hold the funeral service in their church because the deceased was not saved. The reason for that judgment, or should I say condemnation, was because the pastor judged that he was an alcoholic. Well, I was told by some of my members of my church that he was not a skid row, can't hold a job, spend the children's milk money on booze, sleep in the gutter kind of drunk. He was a good husband, a good provider, a good dad, who had just not quite been able to overcome his inner demons that drove him to fall off the wagon every so often. I had to consider the professional ethics of indirectly interfering in another congregation's business and publicly contradicting their doctrine if I chose to help this family. Well, I didn't have to think too long, for I feel strongly that what we say and do in the funeral service has no effect on how God has already judged the deceased, for that judgment already occurred every day, every action, every decision. It's so for all of us. We all stand under God's judgment every day we live. But that judgment can be various and different things. Every action, decision, or attitude of ours might receive the judgment wrong, think again wrong, try again. Or that judgment might be right on. Now you're getting it. Now you're understanding. And often that judgment can be, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's glory. Well, the funeral service is about caring for the grieving family and friends. So I decided to lead that service And I lifted up all the ways that this good man had demonstrated self-giving, sacrificial love for his family, for his friends, his neighbors, for, for the whole community in many ways. And how hard he had already been trying, unsuccessfully though, thus far, to overcome his alcoholism. He had tried hard. And if Jesus could forgive those who tortured and crucified him, surely we have all reason to hope that he could forgive this man's failings. Well, to be sure, the alcoholism robbed this man of having a more complete and full life, but it also brought some pain to his family, but it did not define who he was, and it did not completely separate him from God's grace. 
Well, to deal with this question of how God might judge our loved ones, some traditions place heavy emphasis on verbal confessions of faith, which implies subscribing to explicit doctrinal articles of faith, which you are obliged to believe in order to certify your salvation. Now, that's one approach to our faith, but you and I both know, and we just have to look at a little history and some experience with people we know, that there are a lot of people and many well-placed clergy people who have verbally professed all the right beliefs, even been able to articulate them specifically the way they're supposed to be, but who nevertheless have tragically done unspeakable and scandalous things. So we look for more than just verbal confession of faith, and we look beyond a person's most obvious weaknesses and faults when we want to feel that assurance that God will deal mercifully with our beloved. In our Methodist tradition, we know from searching the Scripture and tradition and using our reason and looking at our experiences that we human beings cannot truly read the human heart of another to know whether a profession of faith was 100% sincere or if it will be strong enough over time to never yield to any temptation. Only God can ultimately judge. It's not our place to judge whether someone else is saved or to condemn them to hell for not being saved. But on the other hand, we can see from a person's outward behavior by expressions of basic attitudes, value statements from the things they avoid doing and do not do, and from the decisions and commitments they do make and their faithfulness to them, we can see over a lifetime definite patterns which indicate a fundamental disposition of the heart and spirit. And when those patterns are consistent with the commandment of Jesus that you love one another just as I have loved you, Jesus tells us people will be able to discern that you are my disciple if you love one another. He went on to say, Believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And that way is the way of self-giving love that he showed us. Well, what I've shared with you so far about this text is one of the more familiar and usual ways of dealing with that text to bring comfort and solace to families in grief. However, this text is also a very strong admonition to the church for an understanding of our mission in the world. And let's look at that side for a moment. The love of Jesus was very self-giving and sacrificial, to be sure, but it was also inclusive. A lot of people are very loving and self-giving and sacrificing for family and their most immediate circle. 
But if we are to love as Jesus loved, that love must extend beyond family, beyond friends, out into the community, out into the world, as far as God would lead us. We see that Jesus' love included that Samaritan woman at the well, the woman who had many husbands that we heard about a few weeks ago. It included the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus said, and listen to this, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. His love included the insurrectionists with him at his crucifixion, one of those guys on either side of him. His love included tax collectors and outcasts and the marginalized of society, the sick, the blind, and the deaf and the lame. Those who the religious folks were saying, that happened to you because you're sinners. Jesus said, no, that is not so. He embraced them and welcomed them. But also his love was not passive, just waiting for people to come up to him and come to him. He went out to the synagogues and challenged those exclusive belief systems that maintained an unjust and unfair and uncaring status quo. He went to the temple and showed his anger at the greed and profiteering in the temple, which exploited the poor who in good faith had come to the temple to worship their God with their offerings. He saw the crass commercial profiteering as sacrilege and profaning and desecrating the, the temple. And his self-giving love took the form of advocating for the powerless against the economic and social injustices. But one of the most miraculous dimensions of this inclusive love of Jesus was the way his love brought this disparate group of disciples together and held them together into this community. This was such a diverse group of disciples. Matthew the tax collector, which meant he was one of those who was in collaboration with the Roman oppressors. He was working for them and with them. And then on the other side, there was Simon the zealot, which means he would have been an insurrectionist, one who was involved in the revolution and not afraid to use violent means of opposing the Roman occupation. These two polar opposites were held together in the same group and family with, God's, with Jesus' grace. And then there's Peter, the impetuous, strong, and bold one. And then there's young John that we get the sense that he was gentle and mystical and philosophical, the beloved disciple. There's Nathaniel, the studious Bible student. And Judas Iscariot, the very practical, expedient businessman. From these most familiar ones, we see this most unlikely group of personalities being held together in that presence of Jesus. So when Jesus said at the Last Supper, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, he's giving them the most strategic methodology for sharing the gospel of the good news of God's redeeming love. If you love one another as I have loved you, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. It was much more than simply demonstrating to others that you are rightly related to God through Jesus. It was more than just giving assurance to your relatives that you are saved. He was saying, more importantly, you will give evidence that the living Spirit of Christ is alive in your midst, in your fellowship. If it were not so... All of your cultural and political and, and 
values, differences, your different styles and attitudes and your different personalities would drive you apart. You couldn't stay together. But the fact that you're together and in fact love one another is a witness to the living presence of Christ with you in your midst. The passage from Acts is another dimension of this theme as the Christian community drew others into its wonderful fellowship of mutual love and acceptance. The more people brought more differences of culture and habits and tastes and dress, daily habits, so that the questions began to arise as to what differences are merely differences in taste and culture that don't really matter and what differences really strike at the heart of the faith and are critical moral and spiritual issues. Well, this account in Acts is telling us just how far the early church needed to go according to God's guidance and will. And so, in Peter's vision, he is commanded by God, do not call profane what God has made clean. Start wiping away those cultural and class and social prejudices. And then after his vision, immediately three men came to him from Caesarea, and the Spirit told him, Go with them and make no distinctions between them and us. Now since Peter had been with Jesus from the beginning, he saw the Spirit of that redeeming love in the midst of those disciples. He was there in the upper room at the Last Supper when Jesus washed the disciples' feet to show him that servant ministry. He was at the empty tomb, and he was at the resurrection appearances and in the upper room, and he was at the seaside. He was there at Pentecost, so if anyone could convince the church council at Jerusalem that it was the same indwelling spirit that they had been experiencing all the time, that same spirit was in these Gentiles, these Greeks, and Cornelius's household. And if anyone could move their hearts and minds at that council, God had given that role to Peter. And that council did say, God has given the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And so Peter is this bridge to the Gentile mission that then allowed Paul's mission to the Gentiles to be a part of one church and not the beginning or not have the fragmentation happen at the beginning and then undermine this mission, but held them together. And so in this world that we live in today with so much conflict, division, wars, and violence and such bitter hatred between groups and factions, we who call ourselves Christian need to remind ourselves every day that Jesus did give us this new commandment, that you love one another. I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May it so be, and may their eyes be opened to recognize it. Amen.